Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that by your light, uh, we see light, and we ask uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit this morning that you would illumine our hearts and our minds and incline them towards you as we go through your holy word. Lord, convict us of our sins, but also at the same time, point us to the beauty and majesty of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can all sit at this time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been in Philadelphia for about uh, coming up my 10th year, but I'm originally from New York City. Um, all of my family has moved from New York City, including my parents who are now uh, who've moved back to South Korea. And I don't know if you've tried to maintain contact with friends or family who are far away, it's quite difficult, especially if there's a big time zone gap. And so my parents have decided to join social media uh, to keep tabs on me and my sibling. And uh, what they don't understand is that I, I don't do well on, on social media. I, uh, I like to lurk instead of post. Uh, as my parents do, they don't post anything. They just want to look at what I'm doing, but I'm not doing anything. And so they're often confused as to what I'm doing in my life. And uh, it's confusing for them and frustrating. And I told them, I said, I'm not good at it. You're not going to see much. I'll only post something if it's spectacular. And uh, maybe I just don't have enough confidence in my own life, my day-to-day activities, but I lead a little, a pretty quiet life. And so I don't feel the need to post things day-to-day only when things are amazing, right? And that's what, you know, that's what stuff like Instagram is for, right? Social media, right? You want to post things and you say 
you know, to the world, you know, you don't see what I see unless you see me seeing it on a picture on your phone that I have posted, right? Right, these incredible things. You don't see this. Only I get to see this, and I'll post it, and you can see it as well. And as people, I feel like we're often built to want to see amazing, incredible, awe-inspiring things, right? That's why we go to the, the movie theater as opposed to watching something at home. You get the big screen, the surround sound. Uh, if you like hiking, you will put your body to the test with uh, just crazy amounts of stress just to see some beautiful views. We do a lot to see something that is majestic. But what about when it comes to our Christian faith? Is there anything in our faith that is awe-inspiring, something majestic? And I would say that, yes, the gospel is something that is incredible. And yet, as we all know, oftentimes as we hear and see things that are amazing over and over again, we lose sensitivity to it. My wife and I, we're, uh, we're in, a, in a Seattle visiting my grandmother, and it's incredible. From all areas of the city, you can see Mount Rainier, clear as day, snowy top mountain in the landscape. And it's incredible. We were freaking out, and we're, we're trying to share it with everyone around us. And they're like, yeah, I live here. I see that every day. It's not a big deal. I said to us, it is. I feel as though sometimes in our own Christian faith, this is what happens as we've come to know the gospel early on in our life, or come Sunday after Sunday hearing it, we lose understanding of how significant, how awe-inspiring it can be. So it's my hope that through this morning, as we go through Mark 12, a very simple sermon, but we're going to be reminded of just how majestic, how incredible, how marvelous this gospel is that Christ came to die for sinners like us. And I hope that as we are able to come to see and behold this majesty once again, that we would look to Christ and seek to have our lives shaped by that very gospel. The sermon this morning will have two points. Uh, Jesus rejected and sinners accepted. Very simple. So for my first point, Jesus rejected. I know you're in a series on encounters with Jesus, and, and I kind of, I chose a passage that just jumps right in, right? Uh, starts verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. So maybe a little uh, context may be helpful. So if you look, you don't have to turn there, uh, but maybe in your own time, or if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11, chapter before this one, helps paint a, a good picture, right? So uh, in verse 27 in that chapter, the chief priests the scribes and the elders all approach Jesus in Jerusalem, and they're, they're questioning his authority, right? And after confounding these leaders, and, you know, just putting them to shame and telling them what's what, he, he begins to tell this parable set in a vineyard. Our passage today explains that after the owner planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, leased it to the tenants, he went to live in another country. Verse 2 tells us that when the season had come, he sent a servant to these tenants to get from them from some of the fruit of the vineyard. And I, I don't think any of us here own a vineyard, but this is a pretty standard practice for people who are making wine, uh, people who own vineyards. You need some 
kind of guarantee and saying like, well, what kind of fruit is going to come in a couple months or next week? You know, how am I going to visualize what I'm going to sell? Are the grapes going to be great? Can I make good wine out of it? Am I going to have to make, you know, some, some box wine instead out of it instead of the good wine, you know, and bring it out later when the good wine is served? Do I need to sell these grapes elsewhere? So all these questions are going through uh, the owner's head. So it's not uh, totally uncommon for this to happen. And yet what we see is something uncommon, right? Verse 3, what happens? Attendant workers, they, they don't take kindly to this servant. Verse 3 tells us they take this man, beat him, and send him away empty-handed. And, uh, you know, just a bit of a puzzling decision on the owner, but he sees this and he says, okay, well, why don't I just send another? Maybe, maybe the servant was a little bigger <laughs> than the last. But still with this servant, they struck on the head, they treated him shamefully. And after the first two, the owner tells us, sends another. But this servant, they kill. Verse 5 tells us that this violence continues to escalate with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. On and on this cycle goes. And, you know, I, I don't know how many servants this master had, but at this point, if I was this master, I would say, okay, you know what, this is... <laughs> getting a little ridiculous. I'm going to need to go and do something myself or uh, call the authorities or something. And yet we see here in verse 6, what does he do? He says, I still have one other, a beloved son. And he sends this son thinking, you know, this is my son, right? They're going to respect him, right? They're going to listen to what he says. But in response, these tenant workers colluding with one another say, this is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And that's what they do. They kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. Uh, I don't know about New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, and Pennsylvania. It's, it's a weird state. Uh, the more I live there, the more I'm like, this, this is a weird place to be. Uh, so if you didn't know, squatter's rights is still a thing in, in Pennsylvania. So uh, let's say I own a house and um, I hired someone to, you know, maybe mow the lawn and I, I, I die somehow uh, and you know, the lawn uh, caretaker continues to come over the course of years. And then I, I think there's some law. I don't know how often people actually evoke this law of, you know, squatter's rights, but he could technically say, I've been taking care of this house for so long, this is now mine and the law would have to give it to him. And so Actually, in the time of Jesus, something very similar uh, existed. And so maybe these, uh, these tenant workers said, you know, let's kill this guy. We're going to continue to take care of this uh, vineyard, and then it will be ours. Not a bad plan, I guess. As we come to the end of the parable, it's interesting to see that we don't see something along the lines of in response to the son being killed, the owner was furious and did this, right? Instead, in verse 9, Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he answers his own question. He says, the owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is a weird way to end a parable, right? It's not like this is a real story, right? So it's like, why, why can't you just give a nice conclusion that the owner came and he got rid of all these guys and gave the vineyard to others? Instead, Jesus, with this totally parable, make-believe story, sets 
the, future, the, the conclusion in the future, the owner will come and destroy the tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. The judgment that the tenant workers would receive was promised at a later time. And uh, through your series and encounters with Jesus, I'm sure you're familiar that parables were often used to conceal the true meaning to those who lacked spiritual eyes and ears to perceive the truth. But here, it seems as though the meaning of the parable is very clear to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Right? Look at verse 12. The leaders, they understood it. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. They got it. They were 100% correct. Because as the leaders are hearing Jesus, there is no doubt that a number of things that Jesus is including in this parable is just sending off all these alarm bells and signals saying, oh my goodness, I think he's talking about us. If If you're familiar with the Old Testament as these men were, the vineyard was often used to describe God's people of Israel. Look at this in Psalm 80. The psalmist compares Israel to a vine that the Lord delivered from Egypt. Jeremiah 2, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. These are just many examples. We can go throughout the whole Old Testament and see all these examples, but the way that Jesus actually starts his parable should have brought its listeners to Isaiah 5. There's a lot of parallels in the way that these two start out. Let me read it for you, Isaiah chapter 5. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. That was Mark. This is Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat, and went looking for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Right? You see here, just reading those passages side by side, it is easy to understand that immediately these leaders are recognizing Isaiah 5. And Jesus isn't bringing up Isaiah 5 just to... You know, bring them down memory lane saying, hey guys, you know, you remember that guy Isaiah, you know, from a long time ago, man, that guy was crazy. You know, all the stuff he would say about the wine and the press and the vineyard and oh, those were some good times, right? That's not what he's trying to do here. Instead, Isaiah 5 is full of judgment against God's people. These were not good memories you read it in your own time, you see that God is responding to his people's unfaithfulness despite his care over Israel. His people turned their backs on him, and in response, God promises judgment for his people as represented in a vineyard. We can see now that as Jesus brings to the leader's mind Isaiah 5, He's actually continuing Isaiah's theme of judgment, but now against, first against the unfaithful people, and now expanding it to Israel's leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of God's people at the time. And these leaders would have immediately recognized it. It's almost 
comical in a way if you really look at this and you see that Jesus is addressing all the leaders of God's people tasked to take care of God's flock, take careful care of God's law. You're sitting near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You see all the statues outside that commemorate the great prophets that the people of old, that their fathers had stoned, beaten, and mocked. And here is Jesus telling the story of tenants in charge of a vineyard, dealing with the servants, dealing with the servants of the owner in the very same way that their ancestors treated the prophets. There's no way that these leaders are sitting there thinking, I wonder who he's talking about, right? It, it's almost as if, uh, I have the opportunity to come preach next week, and I'm so happy to do so, but it's almost as if I come next week and I say, you know, let me, let me tell you guys a story about this church I just preached at. Uh, let me, I won't say the name of the church because it's, uh, you know, I don't wanna, you know, I want you to know, but the church is called Sliberty Fallingswood, and their pastor's name is Slim Anger. But I'm not going to tell you the real names, right? Not, not one of you would sit here and be like, oh, I wonder what church he's talking about, right? It's like, you would look at each other and say, oh my goodness, this guy's talking about us. It's so obvious. It becomes even more obvious when we look later on in the New Testament. And you see as Stephen is, before he's stoned, is accusing the leaders, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of of the righteous one. Everyone listening to this parable knew abundantly well that Jesus was speaking against them. But who is this son? Right? If the workers are these leaders, who is this son? And while does, he doesn't explicitly state who this son is, Jesus gives a very big clue in verse 6 when he says that the owner still had one, a beloved Son, and if you turn to the very beginning of Mark, he is identified by God the Father. How? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so as Jesus is saying this parable, it is so clear that he is identifying himself as the Son. And even in Mark 8, we see that he discloses to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Well, the parable here is directed at the leaders and the judgment that they will receive. The parable centers on Jesus as he comes to the end and he links it to Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You've been listening to me explain this parable for the last, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. It's pretty clear, right? Uh, you follow along and say, okay, all of that makes sense. And but when we come to these verses, 10 and 11, this is where it gets a little confusing. This is the Lord's doing? Huh? This is, this is pretty tragic. This is a really sad story. Why is it that the Lord has his hands all over it, and why is it marvelous in our eyes? What an odd choice of word to use. When you think of a sad story, marvelous is not the first word that you would think that comes to mind. If I showed up 40 minutes late and said, I'm so sorry for being late. It was a huge pileup on 
the Ben Franklin Bridge, and uh, I don't know, it was a terrible, terrible, tragic accident, and traffic, you know, was gone for five miles. Oh, it was marvelous. You would look at me and say, that, that's, that's an odd choice of words to say. You came back from a funeral, I said, how was the funeral? He said, oh, it was marvelous. You've never seen a marvelous funeral like it. The flower arrangements. Oh, oh, the songs that we sang. Oh, it was marvelous. You missed it. I can't believe you weren't there. And yet, this is how Jesus' mission in life, to be rejected, to be killed by his own people, describes something that is indeed marvelous in our eyes. This brings me to my second and final point. Sinners accepted. Why is Jesus' life, why is the gospel something to be marveled at? And in one sense, I think we marvel at the unthinkable action of God sending his son to be rejected and killed for our sins. And this was all according to his plan. It wasn't as though if God mistakenly sent Jesus and thought that he was going to be cherished, loved, and accepted by all, and when he was killed, said, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. No, this was the Lord's doing, knowing full well that the Son of God had to be subjected under the very weaknesses that you and I have yet without sin in order to save us, to save sinners like you, to save sinners like me so that you and I could be counted as part of God's family. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but through this rejection, he became the very cornerstone on which God's church, his family, is built upon, and it is this that we marvel at. That despite our many sins, God made a way for us to pass through that judgment to have real and everlasting life. And in this way, as we come to see that Mark 12 shows us that he had to come. There was no other way. It was the Lord's hand in sending him. He had to come. We actually see the harsh reality of what our sin really is and what it deserves. Sin is something so heinous and disgusting, anything contrary to God's will for our lives that in order to be saved from it, a just punishment needed to be exacted. Condemnation and death. And so while there is something altogether tragic about this story, we see that this marvelous thing was absolutely necessary, that Jesus came to die on our behalf, to offer himself as the blameless one without sin, in order that we might have life with God. There was no other way. Sin had to be dealt with because it deserves the full wrath of a holy and righteous God. I have a, I have a friend who, who, is, who is not a Christian who, who likes to engage with me on questions about my faith. And one question he always gets hung up on is, he says, Victor, if God can do all things, if he's perfect, if he's good and loves all things, and everything that you say he is, why do some people need to die? And why are others saved. Well, why can't he just say, you know, it's cool. <laughs> Everyone's saved, right? I don't need to punish anything. Everything is cool. Everything is good. And to that I answer, and I say, death is real. 
because sin is real. And God wouldn't be a perfect God if he had let evil go unpunished. He would no longer be a perfect judge. Think of an earthly judge. What judge would keep his job if someone who was clearly guilty of a crime and the judge says, it's cool, (laughs) you can go. That's just not how it works. Christ needed to die because our sins are very real and sin's consequences are even more real. I believe that's a key thing that we need to take away from our text this morning as we think about the fact that Christ needed to come. Because as we are met face to face with the reality that Jesus needed to come and deliver himself unto death because of our sins, we are met at the very same time with the real severity and understanding of how gross our sin is. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, there was not a moment in his life that he was safe. From the moment of his birth, fleeing to Egypt, people plotting against him at every corner, all the way up into his death, there was not a moment where he was safe, and yet he came because of our sins to save us. And we hold these two things hand in hand, the reality of our sin, but the beauty of our Savior. And one natural application from this uh, text, we can ask ourselves, how are we living with sin? Are we attempting to live in harmony with just a little sin? Oftentimes I find that we become preoccupied with the worldly consequences of our sin. Oh, what that sin would do to my marriage. Oh, what that sin would do uh, to how people in the workplace see me, or I might get arrested if I do that. Worldly consequences of our sin, and yet we disregard the cosmic realities of what our sin is. In this way, we are very much like children at times, content to hide in our sins in secret, as long as it doesn't affect those around us. As long as nobody else finds out, it will be okay. But no, being confronted with Christ's work and the necessity of that shows us the true extent of what our sins do. That day by day we should come to a real reality, uh, come to a sobering reality of what our sins are. Yet at the same time, we're not called to stand there. Why is this story marvelous? I've asked that over and over again. It's marvelous because Christ came to save us. We look in the book of Nehemiah as They're reading the book of the law in chapter 8, and the people over their sins are just broken and crushed, recognizing what they've done. They say, stop. Stop crying. (laughs) Really weird, right? They're saying, stop. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes, your sins is a real thing. But at the very same time, your Savior is just as real. And he has come to deliver you from those sins. It's my prayer this morning that as we hear this word, we strive to live lives shaped by this gospel. A true understanding of who Jesus is, why he has come, and strive to live a holy life clinging to his promises. As I 
conclude this sermon as we think about this application, it can be discouraging. You hear everything I said and it takes scope of your life and who here among us, including myself, can confidently say that, yeah, that's me. Every Sunday I hear the gospel. I'm in awe of it. It's something marvelous. Every day I try to shape my life in a way that's in conformity to this gospel. I'm amazed that Jesus came to die for me, and now I hate my sins. I don't think not one of us could say that. But we praise God and we rejoice that our salvation is not dependent on our best efforts to know who Jesus is, to kill our own sin. Our salvation is dependent on none other than this marvelous Savior who has come to die for us. And in our faith in him, we are saved. And there's no other name by which we are saved. And for this, we give thanks. And we worship him. And we come in confidence week after week hearing this gospel, knowing that through our union with our Savior, our salvation is secure and we rest in that and strive to live a life pleasing to him, knowing that there is not a moment our Father does not look down at us. And he sees us as righteous, as beautiful, as his children. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we conclude this morning, I want to ask, how often do, are we amazed at the work of our Savior? How often do we come to a Bible study and complete all of what Jesus has done for us? It's my prayer that we as a church would not lose hope when we recognize that that's not us, but that we would continue to cling to Jesus, who came and died in our place. Because while we did not even have a shred of decency, no good in us. Our pathway to life was made possible by a Savior who died willingly for us. This is the Jesus that we cling to today, our marvelous Jesus. We cling to him until that last day when he returns. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.